Well, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. So sad that we have to say goodbye to all these Christmas decorations. I always think the sanctuary looks very beautiful. Well, let's uh, go to the Lord and ask for his blessing on this time. Father God, I do um, give you praise for the opportunity to be your oracle this morning. I do pray that you will really soften hearts and allow the Holy Spirit to empower uh, this message and to convey the word to all those who need to hear it. And I do pray that you give us the grace to apply it. And Lord, I just pray that this will be a time of blessing, that you'll give us a ten of hearts so that we might learn the lesson you have for us. In Christ's name, amen. Well, I was in the eighth grade when my dad, who was employed as a uh, traveling salesman, announced the big news that he was going to redeem his frequent flyer miles, which he accrued over several years, to, bar- to purchase airplane tickets to Australia for the entire family for a nice two-week family vacation. So naturally, we were very excited. Crocodile Dundee was very big at the time, so we were looking forward to throwing a couple of shrimps on the barbie. So we all uh, made that 20-hour trek down to Australia, my two teenage sisters and my little brother and, of course, myself. And to give you a little background, we were not necessarily um, a Christian family. We weren't a Christian family. In fact, you can make a solid case that we were spoiled children. And we were all going to be in a, in a foreign country alone. And so the way it worked out is we would go um, drive about four hours each morning, have three meals together and stay in the hotel room as we would journey along the, the southern coast. And while it was beautiful, uh, there were many things that began to rub against each other, particularly our own uh, desires where each one of us had the desire to look out for number one. On top of this, you had my dad's questionable driving. I'm not sure if you know this, but my dad uh, figured it out after a few days that they actually drive on the other side of the road in Australia. <laughs> and the way the, the freeways work is you'd have an eight-lane freeway with the grass divider in the middle, but there wouldn't be any exits. you just turn off onto your side street. And if you missed your side street, you'd have to drive about a half mile, do a U-turn, drive a mile, then do another U-turn, drive a half mile less the side street, and then turn in. And so this caused endless frustrations as we were doing U-turn counts uh, each day. Well, one day I think my dad had enough and he missed his exit by one block. And he pulled into the driveway with a solemn expression. He began to look at the oncoming traffic with a calculated expression. And before we knew it, my dad turned into the four-lane freeway. Now, you know I lived through this, but it was close. We were panicking, we were screaming, and then we saw it. We saw four cars approaching us in linear formation. Two trucks and two cars all honking their horns, doing different hand gestures. We didn't know sign language at the time, which was a good thing. And my dad narrowly averted disaster when he drived onto the grass island and kind of pulled in to the driveway. And, and while we were all silent and, and still disbelief, once we pulled into safety, we let my poor dad have it. And that whole vacation, while we had a great time in many ways, was marred by an overarching spirit of complaining, where my dad, who graciously gave us this vacation, was uh, constantly grieved against on account of the food, you know, the people that were with us, his driving, the fact that dad was trying to kill us, and other things. <laughs> and it was a tragedy in many ways that we allowed our grumbling and whining spirit to disrupt what could have been a wonderful family occasion. And it still was in many respects. Now, 
when you look at whining and complaining, it really does nothing but add grief to the one you grumble or complain against. In fact, by definition, to whine and to grumble mean, means to whine means to grumble peevishly, to complain or protest about something in an annoyingly plaintive voice. And it is a curse to all those who are in authority. Now, seriously, what parent is ever endeared to their child when they whine and complain? I mean, do they ever say, Nathan, you may not eat your broccoli. You may avoid eating broccoli if you whine. Or what, what teacher tells their classroom, I was going to give you a, a term paper to, to do next week, but since you all uh, led a revolt, uh, I'll go ahead and let this slide. Or what boss will tell their employee, you know, Fred, in light of your uh, attempted office mutiny, I'll go ahead and give you the raise and the extra week of vacation you're jockeying for. Right? When you whine and when you complain, it does nothing but make you odious to the person that you complain to. And yet we still do it. We still whine, we still complain. We complain about the church leadership, our salary, uh, decisions made by the government, the elections, the temperature of different rooms, uh, our health, and, and perhaps certain people that are in our lives. And it doesn't change anything. It only makes ourselves miserable. And the only reaction that you ever get when you whine is displeasure, not only from other people, but from God Almighty. So today we're going to look at the folly of whining so that you will obtain something which whining will never give you. The pleasure of God, the peace which God will give those who find contentment in him. Now to do this, we're going to turn to the book of Numbers, particularly chapter 11. Now in the book of Numbers, we find Israel in the desert being prepared by their God to enter the promised land. Now this is a group of people who encountered unimaginable suffering at the hand of the Egyptians. The Egyptians were the ones who put them in bondage. The Pharaoh used a vast amount of Hebrew slaves to build up his kingdom mud brick by mud brick. In addition to seven days a week labor without pay and minimal compensation, the Pharaoh tried to kill their children. By trying to throw each of their sons into the Nile. So as they're undergoing the horrors of this persecution. In their agony. They, they remembered the God of their fathers. The God of Abraham. And they cried out to him to deliver them. And God graciously heard them. And he heard them and answered their prayer by summoning the prophet Moses. To which he says in Exodus 3, 7 through 8. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. And I have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters, for I'm aware of their sufferings. So I've come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey. Now notice how God addresses them as my people. God remembers the covenant which he made with their forefathers, with Abraham that righteous man who who God promised to be his God and to bless his descendants and to give them a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. On account of Abraham's faithfulness, God promises to be with his descendants forever and ever. Thus God comes to display his mercy on Israel, to deliver them from Egypt. Thus a great miracle that deliverance begins. We find that God triumphs over the false gods of Egypt. 
The Nile turns to blood. Frogs, insects, and locusts plague the land. Their cattle die. Boils fester on their skin. Hail crushes their crops. Darkness blankets the land. And then the final plague happens. Moses instructs the Jews to slaughter a lamb, sprinkle blood on the doorpost so that when the angel of death comes, he will overlook their house. He will pass over them and only smite the firstborn sons of the Egyptians. Obediently, the Hebrews comply in faith. They execute the commands and the prescriptions given by God through Moses. And the angel of death smites the firstborn Egyptians, passing over the Hebrews. There's a great cry throughout Egypt and the Pharaoh finally broken. Let's Moses's people go. And this nation that was previously hostile to them, that enslaved them, that punished them, gives them an escort out of the land of Egypt. The Pharaoh then has a change of heart. He sends the most powerful army in the world at that time after them. At the banks of the Red Sea, they cry out again to Moses. Moses raises his staff, the Red Sea part. They walk through on dry land to be chased by the Egyptians. And then the waters enclose around them. And they all die. God overcame the Egyptian gods, the Egyptian army. He showed himself to be triumphant and supreme. But it doesn't stop there. God is still making more promises to Israel. You see, in Exodus 19, 5 through 6, where he says... Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God promises that they will be a kingdom of priests, that he will make them righteous so that they might spread their righteousness throughout all the earth. And to do this, to make them a holy nation, he gives them the law. God's prescriptions on how to be holy so that they might be able to worship Yahweh in the promised land. In addition to just giving them the law, he gives them a means to bait them, to enforce the law upon them. He gives them in Leviticus 26 promises that will make it to their benefit, that will reward them for obeying the covenant. He promises rain, food and fertility and peace and blessing for obedience. But then he promises plagues, pestilence, and pillaging for disobedience. Now, there is an overarching theme that we find here. What we find is that we have a loving God who makes promises. But this loving God who makes promises is also an exceptionally powerful God, a God who has omnipotent ability to do or fulfill anything that he says. Therefore, in light of this good, merciful, loving God who's making these promises, who demonstrates his power to fulfill them, you should trust him. You should obey him. You should have faith in him that he will do exactly what he told you who would. Now, it is this lesson which, if learned, will make their life peaceful and prosperous in the promised land. But it is a failure to learn this lesson, to just trust Yahweh, to obey God that gave them the grief, that gave them grief as they as they wandered from the straight and narrow. So in Numbers chapter 10, we find Israel on the move again. After nine months sitting at the base of, of Mount Sinai, numbering their camp, receiving the law, implementing some of the uh, some of the prescriptions in there, they are are moving forward. 
And if all goes well in about three weeks, they will be in the promised land to that good land flowing with milk and honey. And you see at the end of numbers chapter 10, that the spirits are high. They're celebrating. They're, they're calling upon God to bless their journey. But all that changes where after three days in numbers 11 through one, 11, one through three, we read about how the fortunes changed. Now the people became like those who complain of adversity in the hearing of the Lord. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some on the outskirts of camp. The people therefore cried out to Moses and Moses prayed to the Lord and the fire died out. So the name of the place was called Tabera because the fire of the Lord burned among them. Now what we see here is a complaint cycle. The Israelites are faced with adversity, and so they complain. God hears their complaint. He takes it personally. He gets upset. He casts judgment upon them. The Jews receive the judgment. They become scared. They cry out for help. They go to Moses. Moses intercedes for them. The plague stops. The judgment stops. And then they name the place after the whole ordeal so that they will remember, don't do that again. Now imagine... That you were in a class and one of your classmates began heckling the teacher. Began talking disrespectfully to other students, interrupting her when she was trying to teach. Making fun of her, hurling insults. And then after several warnings and this heckler keeps on going at it. The teacher stops and looks at him like this. And then two laser beams shoot out of her eyes. (laughs) And incinerates Johnny. And so Johnny, the former heckler, is now a pile of ash on a, on a charred desk. Now, legal ramifications aside, <laughs> you would make a mental note. Don't mouth off to Mrs. Jones, right? <laughs> and so you have this place called the place of the burning, Tabera, and it was to be a mental note. Don't complain. And yet, the Israelites did not learn this lesson, as we'll see in Numbers 11, 4 through 34. And so, when we look at it, I have a slide up here that gives you our little outline. We're going to break this down. We're going to look at some observations about this passage and, and its relevance to whining and complaining. Now, the first part you see is that you have the whining and crying in verses 4 through 8. You have Moses' grief in 10 through 15. God's reaction to resourcefulness in 16 through 23. Moses' relief in 24 through 29. And the dying and the dying in 30 to 34. So look at this section by section. Let's start with the whining and the crying in verses 4 through 8. The rabble of those who were among them had greedy desires. And also the sons of Israel wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish which we used to eat free in Egypt, the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlics, but now our appetite is gone. There is nothing to look at except this manna. Now the manna was like coriander seed and his appearance like that of bdellium. The people would go about it and gather it and grind it between two millstones and beat it in the mortar and boil it in the pot and make cakes with it. And his taste was as the taste of cakes baked with oil. Now from this section, we can make seven observations about their whining. The first one is that these people were spiritually dull. They did not remember what happened the last time everybody whined. It's like, hello, remember Tabera? You know, people whine and they were incinerated by fire from heaven. 
You see, they're so focused on their own, um, their own injustice, their own trials, the, the means by which they were defrauded, that they totally forget that there's another player in the picture. They're so focused on themselves that they forgot about God. You see, whiners are only focused upon themselves and can't see the big picture, the biblical picture in the midst of their trials. Secondly, see that they focus only on their sinful cravings. Now, it is said that that children pick up whining as a means of audible blackmail. Well, they will talk in that nasally voice and ask for a cookie over and over and over and over and over and over and over again until you finally say, all right, I'll give you the cookie. Just be quiet. Right? That's what they do. See, they have this object of lust where they will manipulate people to give it to them. And so in this case, they were whining. The Israelites were whining because they had an object of their desire. And in this case, it was their meat. And this demonstrates just the base character of whining and complaining. It wasn't about anything really spiritual. It was about the choice of food. But think about it. You have teenagers who will whine and complain about having to get up early. You have men who complain if something disrupts the big game. And everybody will complain if they feel the slightest hint of pain. So essentially, love of pleasure, love of self, a desire to want to have your own appetites met, leads to complaining against the sovereign circumstances of God. Thirdly, they wept. And this is a pathetic whine. They wept again. The Israelites were not upset that God's glory had somehow been compromised. They're upset that, well, they're not eating any meat. You see, somebody who whines and complains is incapable of feeling any empathy or compassion towards others, other people, except for themselves. A whiner only feels empathy towards themselves. They only focus on their issues and their problems and their injustices. Fourthly, you see that they lost perspective, that they celebrated their former life of bondage. In verse 5 we read, we remember the fish we used to eat free in Egypt. The cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. In other words, the Israelites would rather return to the life where they worked seven days a week in the hot sun, kneading heavy clay, gathering their own straw, forming bricks and being subject to a cruel taskmaster and a pharaoh who sought to kill their children than to be in the desert under God's gracious provision. You know, sure, we got lashed a few times. Sure, they tried to kill our sons, but at least the food was tasty. At least the fish was free. Hey, it really wasn't that bad. You see, people who whine and complain lose their perspective on the past. Now, several Christians will will lament at all the rules and restrictions that govern the Christian life like they're a bad thing. They'll look back at their life in Egypt and they would think, you know what, if I wasn't a Christian, I could date that hot girl who's not a Christian. If I wasn't a Christian, I can watch that sultry movie. If I wasn't a Christian, I could have a few beers with my friends, maybe take a few hits. I could sleep in on Sunday. I won't have to worry about those, those Christians always rebuking me. I could live my own life. But little do they remember that when that was the choice, when that was their, their chosen path, they were also children of hell. They were, they were close to being damned for their sin. That they were lost without hope in the world. You see, when you whine and you complain, you began to make the curse of the past look like a blessing and the blessings of the present look like a curse. In addition, they were unthankful for their blessings. They say there's nothing to look at except for this manna. 
And then in verses 7 through 9, you see Moses expounds upon what a privilege it was to eat this type of food. This was a miracle food. It was a blessing from God that became an object of loathing. Now, Keith Green, who's one of my new favorite Christian musicians, but he's old, though. He's, he's a hippie you know, who converted to Christ. He comments on, on life in Sinai in this song, So You Want to Go Back to Egypt. He says this, Well, there's nothing to do but travel, and we sure travel a lot, because it's hard to keep your feet from moving when the sand gets so hot. And in the morning, it's manna hot cakes. We snack on manna all day. And we sure had a winner last night, flaming manna souffle. <laughs> now, to be honest with you, I'm going to be honest, Dave. If I had to eat the same thing for two consecutive meals, I would start to complain, right? I mean, if you think about maybe a day of the same thing, you ate oatmeal all day or let's say a week or a month, I mean, what would be your disposition? But you see, in Israel, they, they lost the bigger picture here. I mean, this was a unique blessing from God. It was a continual reminder of God's grace. Now, let's say... One day I, I pay you a visit and I show up at your house and, you know, I knock on the door and you think, uh-oh, am I in trouble? But you're not because I pull out a crisp $100 bill and I say, I give this to you. Merry Christmas. Now, you, that's pretty cool, right? It could be a date to your wife. You're really excited. You hug me. You go in. You bring your Bible. You have me sign it for you. And, and it's just, um, <laughs> yeah, I'm now your favorite pastor. So the next day I, I come by again and, and you're, you're thinking maybe, but then I pick out another hundred dollar bill and I give it to you and you're like, whoa. And I do this every day for a week, then for a month and then for six months. Now, by this time, I'm actually budgeted into your uh, annual salary, right? Uh, you take out a mortgage and, and you're building an addition to your house and you're also buying a, uh, a jet boat, you know, so you can take to Pyramid Lake and, and take your kids water skiing. But then what happens when it stops? I guarantee you, all of you would be tempted to complain. Because often when we are continually blessed with a blessing we don't deserve, we begin to think, well, why me? Then the conversation begins, well, why not me? And then obviously it should be me. And we begin to look at all these blessings as if we somehow deserve them. And when we think you deserve a blessing, when you deserve a gift, it's no longer a gift. It's something you're entitled to. And so in this case, they were given these blessings. They were given all these wonderful uh, privileges. And they began to complain about how God gave it to them. They grew to demanding variety and really spitting on the blessing which God gave them. You see, God's blessing, this is point number six. God's blessings are never good enough for a whiner. I mean, what would happen if filet mignon rained down from the sky? Well, it's not wrapped in bacon, God. Or, you know what, it's a little bit dry on the sides. I mean, or can we maybe kind of mix up the different cuts of meat and try ribs the next night? I mean, if it's not one thing, it'll be another. See, lust by its very definition is never satisfied. And seventhly, they doubted God's character and provision. As we'll see later, God was very upset with the whining and complaining, and he should be. You see, God knew that they were in the desert because he put them there. And he knew that they knew that they were in the desert because God put them there. And so this was nothing more than blasphemous slander. Instead of seeing this God as a, as the loving God who rescued them from the hand of the cruel taskmasters in Egypt, he was the ogre who kidnapped them and took them to the desert to a place where they couldn't eat any more good food. That's how they saw God. 
And this was a blasphemous act which slandered God and tormented Moses, as we see in the next section. We see Moses' grief in 10 through 15, starting in 10. Now, the people... Now Moses heard the people weeping throughout their families, each man in his doorway of his tent. And the anger of the Lord was kindled greatly. And Moses was displeased. See, Moses is feeling the tension. On one hand, he has a group of angry individuals who are bickering, complaining, whining, and grumbling, who can never make happy. On the other hand, he has this, this holy God who's burning in anger. So he's between two angry individuals. Now, God is rightfully upset, and as a result, Moses begins to despair. In verse 11, we see, So Moses said to the Lord, Why have you been so hard on your servant? And why have I not found favor in your sight, that you have laid the burden of all this people on me? Now, this was not Moses' finest hour. I mean, Moses emphatically blames God for giving him an unbearable task. The burden of leading these unruly people, God, is just too great. And he goes on to say in verse 12, Was it I who conceived all this people? Was it I who brought them forth that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a nursing infant to the land which you swore to their fathers? I mean, Moses is pushing responsibility back upon God. God, if these are your people, why don't you tell them what to do? Then verse 18, Where am I to get meat to give all this people? For they weep before me, saying, Give us meat that we may eat. I alone am not able to carry all this people, because it is a burdensome, because it is too burdensome for me. Moses pushes his responsibility back on God. He wipes his hands clean and says, God, you take care of them from now on. And in addition, he makes this remarkable statement. In verse 15, So if you are going to deal thus with me, Please kill me at once if I have found favor in your sight. Do not let me see my wretchedness. God, if you love me, why don't you just take my life right now? I would rather die than spend one more minute with these whining and complaining people. I mean, these complainers drove Moses to the brink. I mean, this was a man who was despairing. See, not only were these whiners and complainers not thinking about God, not only were they only thinking about themselves, they weren't even thinking about their leadership. They weren't thinking about Moses and the impact that they had on this man of God. I mean, think about the teenager who complains to the family that I hate the size of my room, I hate the size of my house, I hate the fact that I only wear outdated clothes and we don't have good food to eat in this house. There's a complaint against God, but against who else? It's against the dad. And that dad would take that personally, right? See, if you want to drive a pastor out of town, this is what you can do. If you want to spook me out of here, just complain every time you see me. Every time you see me, tell me something that's wrong with my sermon or with this church or with the leadership. Just complain, and I guarantee you that'd be the quickest way to to make the pastor go to another church. Because when you complain incessantly, you complain against God, but you complain against the powers that be that God established. And it has a demoralizing effect on leadership. And so you see God, how God reacts to this. In verses 16 through 23, God's reaction and resourcefulness. Now, God's reactions towards Moses is surprisingly compassionate. Although Moses seems to be complaining against God, God seems to be a lot more sympathetic towards him because at least he's not complaining about the menu. <laughs> In Numbers eleven sixteen, 
we read, The Lord therefore said to Moses, Gather for me 70 men, 70 men from the elders of Israel, whom you know to be elders of the people and their officers and bring them to the tent of meeting and let them take their stand there with you. Then I will come down and speak with you there and I will take the spirit who is upon you and I will put him upon them and they shall bear the burden of the people with you so that you will not have to bear it alone. So God sees how Moses is burdened and he lifts that burden from Moses by placing his spirit on 70 other elders and prophets so that they will be anointed leaders. It'll be very clear that these people have been chosen by God to help govern this people. And he does that to show mercy, show mercy to a very discouraged servant. And then he goes on to say, in verse 18, say to the people, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow and you shall eat meat. For you have wept in the ears of the Lord saying, oh, that someone will give us meat to eat. For we are all well off in Egypt. Therefore, the Lord will give you meat and you shall eat. You shall eat not one day, nor two days, nor five days, nor ten days, nor twenty days, but a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you. Because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and had wept before him saying, why did we ever leave Egypt? In addition to showing mercy on Moses, Yahweh decides to curse the complaining Israelites. And with a comic twist, God commands, he says, I am going to give them so much meat that it will be flowing out of their nostrils. The blessing which they lust after will become a curse. Now, William Budd Post won $16.2 million in the Pennsylvania lottery. I mean, isn't that a blessing that we would all love? The cool $16.2 million so we could finish the building fund and buy a new house? Yet, in 1988, a year later, he lives on Social Security. I wish it never happened. It was totally a nightmare, says Post. Former girlfriend sued him for her share of the winnings and won. It wasn't the only lawsuit. His brother hired a hitman to try to kill him. In addition, he had two relatives who, who pestered him into investing in a, at a car dealership in a restaurant in Sarasota, Florida, and he gave them the money and never saw it again. In addition to that, a year later, he declared bankruptcy and he tried to shoot a bill collector. So now that the money is gone, he found himself a million dollars in debt. He declared bankruptcy. He now lives on $450 a month and food stamps. He says, I am tired. I'm over 65 years old and I just had a serious operation for a heart aneurysm. Lotteries don't mean anything to me, says Post. See, sometimes when you get what you want, it's a curse in and of itself. What you lust for will in fact be a curse. Now, God had every right to give them this curse because you look at what they did. In verse 20, you see this judgment is well-deserved when he says, because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wept before him saying, why did we ever leave Egypt? You see, this language is emphatic and firm. They rejected Yahweh who is among them. He is near in grace and they turn their backs on him. He is in their midst and they wish that he would go away. He has come down. They wish he would leave. He gives them blessings and of manna and they see them as a curse. And this is akin to a modern Christian telling Jesus Christ face to face. I wish you would have never have died for me. Leave me alone. 
Yahweh, get out of here. We don't want your face anymore. And that's what they were saying. You see why God is rightfully upset. So God unfolds his plan to Moses. And you see that the prophet is perplexed by how God is going to accomplish this. Now Moses said, the people among whom I am are, are 600,000 on foot. Now you have said, I'll give them meat to eat so that they may eat for a whole month. Should flocks and herds be slaughtered for them? To, me, to be sufficient for them? Or should the fish of the sea be gathered together for them to be sufficient for them? Now keep in mind when the text mentions 600,000 people, we were talking about 600,000 men, 600,000 soldiers. The number is about 2 to 3 million people. And he's going to feed 2 to 3 million people every day for a month meat. Enough meat that will flow out of their nostrils, however much that is. Now, this impossible task sets up the most important section of this passage. You see... God's response in the next verse is what this story is all about. Now, if you look at Numbers chapter 11, if you look at the structure, it'd be what we'd call a chiasm. Now, that's a poetical structure in which the external parts work its way inward to focus on the middle. It'd be like two slopes of the mountain focusing on its peak or or a funnel draining through the center. And so if you look at the outline here, you have the two outside parts. You have the whining and the crying and the dining and the dying. The discord of the Jews and the subsequent punishment. You have Moses' grief and then Moses' relief, where God's ministry to Moses. And then you have the central part about God's response and reaction. How he responded with wrath and compassion. He responded, he reacts and responds by giving Moses help and promising that. And then he makes an incredible statement. He began to explain the whole point of the central section. That he's doing all of this so that they will learn a vital lesson which will sustain them in the promised land. In verse 23, the Lord said to Moses, Is the Lord's power limited? Now you shall see whether my word will come true for you or not. The whole point of this passage is that God Almighty is Almighty. That he has omnipotent power to do whatever he so chooses. So instead of complaining, instead of whining, why not trust him? Why not go to him? Why not lay your burdens upon him and let him carry them? He will maintain his promise to take them to the promised land. He will make them a kingdom of priests. He will bless them for obedience. He will curse them for disobedience. He has shown himself to be faithful in the past and he will be faithful in the future. So why not trust him? And God makes these promises to us. Consider Romans 8.28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love God. To those who are called according to his purpose. See, every time you're tempted to complain, realize that the object of complaint is an object of blessing. That God in his omnipotence, in his creative power, will turn that into a blessing for your good. Corey Tenboom in The Hiding Place relates an incident which taught her this principle. She and her sister Betsy were transferred to Ravensbrook, the worst prison camp they had seen to date. This was a place where the barracks were extremely overcrowded and flea infested. And when they went in there, the scripture reading of the day reminded them that they needed to give thanks for everything that God had given them. And so they systematically went through the barracks and thanked God for this bed. 
this person, etc. And they finally got to the fleas and Corey Ten Boom resisted giving thanks to God for the fleas. Well, she finally gave in. And they were surprised to find out how openly they can hold Bible studies in the barracks and prayer meetings uh, without guard, the usual guard interference. Now, months later, they came to realize the reason why they had such a prosperous and open ministry was because the Nazi guards did not want to be around the fleas. (laughs) See, the object of cursing became an object of blessing. And God will use his power to make all things worthy of, of a curse be worthy of a blessing. Then we go to Moses' relief in 24 through 29. We reach the top of the mountain. Now we cascade to the other side. In Numbers 11, 24 through 29, so Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord. He also gathered 70 men and elders of the people and stationed them around the tent. Then the Lord came down in a cloud and spoke to him and took the spirit who was upon him and placed him upon the 70 elders. And when the spirit rested upon them, they prophesied, but they did not do it again. So in a mini Pentecost, God gives a spirit to these elders so that they are imbued with this prophetic gift so that everybody would know that they are chosen by God to co-lead the people with Moses. But in verse 26, two men had remained in the camp. The name of one was Eldad and the name of the other was Medad. And the spirit rested upon them. Now they were among those who had been registered but had not gone out to the tent and they prophesied in the camp. So the young man ran and told Moses and said, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, the attendant of Moses from his youth said, Moses, my Lord, restrain them. See, Joshua was concerned about two men who did not join the rest at the tabernacle. This breach of protocol, he thought, was a means of being, uh, a means of, of really overturning Moses' leadership. It was a subversive action. They were not prophesying under Moses' oversight. But this is where Moses' character comes through. Moses said to him, are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets and the Lord would put his spirit upon them. See, Moses was not concerned about his perceived leadership. He was concerned that about the vitality of the Hebrews. And he wished that all of the Jews would experience, a, experience the intimacy and the privilege of having the Holy Spirit speak through you, through prophecy. See, what would have been an object of complaint became a means of praising God and blessing him. Now we come to the last part, the, the dining and the dying. This is the foot of the mountain where God intervenes. In Numbers eleven thirty to 31, Then Moses returned to the camp, both he and the elders of Israel. Now there went forth a wind from the Lord, and it brought about quail from the sea, and let them fall beside the camp, and about a day's journey on this, this side, and a day's journey on the other side, all around the camp, and two cubits deep on the surface of the ground. Two cubits, three feet deep, just a bounty of quail. They were satisfied to their heart's content. And verse 32, the people spent all day and night and all the next day and gathered the quail. He gathered least, gathered 10 homers and they spread them out for themselves around the camp. Now this scene must have been akin to a riot. You have people screaming in delight. You have birds flapping their, their wings, a pell-mell movement of meat-hungry carnivores. One commentator notes, they must have been like sugar crazed boy, like a sugar crazed boy in a child's daydream, afloat on a chocolate sandwich, cookie raft, and a sea of chocolate syrup, nibbling at the cookie before drowning in the dark, sweet sea. Now, such carnivorous carnage revolted God. 
While the meat was still between their teeth, before it was chewed, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people. And the Lord struck the people with a very severe plague. So the name of the place was called Kibroth Hata'ava, because there the people buried the people who had been greedy. Before they could swallow, God made them choke. Now, some speculate that they weren't able to handle the heavy meat. Now, whatever the case, the object which they desired became a curse and led to their own death. The meat which they choked upon caused their death. See, many young men, many young men and women will have a greedy desire to get married. And so they go ahead and disobey God and marry an unbeliever. And that unequally yoked union will be an object of scorn for them. And they'll always remember that was a time where their greedy desire got the best of them. See, the point of this passage and the point of the greed is not necessarily that they were just complaining, but there was a heart of greediness within them. They had greedy desires. They had a desire to look out for number one. You see, the greed that they had was a form of idolatry. And, and Colossians 3, 5 makes that point. You see, they had this idolatrous heart that wanted to be satisfied. They wanted, they were like drug addicts who would sin to get drugs by stealing or they'd sin if they didn't have drugs by complaining and being anxious and fretful. You see, if you find yourself complaining and whining, the heart of that issue is an idolatrous desire to look out for number one. You see, in, in James 4.1, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is it not the source, your pleasures that wage war in your members? In verse 2, you lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. You're envious, you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. And you do not have because you do not ask. See, the reason why people complain, why they're spiteful, is because they're not getting respect. They're not getting the pay that they deserve. They're not being treated the way they should. Somebody's taking something away from them. And as a result, they complain. And that is their chosen path to get what they want. Now, if that's you, I want to encourage you to make some steps. When you are tempted to complain, when you want something, the first thing you should do is you need to search your heart. In wanting a bigger house or a pay raise or be able to date this person, would you be content if it never happened? Would you still love the Lord and give him glory regardless of whether or not he gives you the desire of your heart? Secondly, search the scriptures. In addition to Romans 8.28, which talks about how God works out everything for the good of those who love him, think about 1 Corinthians 10.13 that no temptation has overtaken you, but such is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will provide a way of escape so that you will be able to endure. No matter what it is, God makes promises. It won't overtake you. It won't lead you down the path of darkness. In fact, God will turn it into a blessing for you. Then in addition to searching your heart and searching the scriptures, search the circumstances. Think about how God has used adverse circumstances in the past to bless you. How when that one girl broke up with you, it was a good thing because it allowed you to meet your future wife. Or how you got overlooked for this one promotion here, but you got a different job at a different place. Think about God's past faithfulness and and creatively think about how we can use these circumstances in the future. Don't count on it, but just think about how God can bless you. And fourthly, search for God. If you truly believe that your desire is of the Lord, then, then don't complain to other people, to God about it. Go to God and ask him and see what he will give you. You see, by learning to place all of our desires on the throne, we will, we will learn how to make these objects of a complaint worthy of being an object of blessing. F.B. Meyer recounts how he learned this lesson. 
He was a pastor of Christ Church in London at the same time of G. Campbell Morgan, who was a pastor of Westminster Chapel, and Charles H. Spurgeon, who was a pastor of Metropolitan Tabernacle. Both of them had exceptionally large congregations. And Meyer recounted how he was often troubled with envy towards these men with their larger congregations. And he confessed that it was not until he began praying for his colleagues that he did have the peace of heart. When I thank God for them and prayed for their success, said Meyer, the result was that God filled their churches so full that the overflow filled mine. And it has been full ever since. So instead of whining and complaining, pray to God. And in addition, thank God in advance for all the wonderful things that he will do. Don't curse God for the trials. Thank God for the trials. And when you do that, he will give you abundant joy, peace, contentment, and happiness. A happy heart, which in itself will be the greatest blessing you can have. Let's pray. Father God, I do thank you for your word. I thank you for this lesson. And I just pray that you give us the grace to not complain and not whine and not grumble but to lay our burdens upon you because you do care for us. I pray for all these things in Christ's name. Amen.